0: CONSPIRACY UNLIMITED WITH RICHARD SERRT
1: On this episode, a political analyst, strategist, and advocate for peaceful separation of right and left in America discusses the coming Civil War.
2: But the problem is in the type of warfare that this would be, this is not two armies just lining up against each other and seeing who has bigger firepower. Uh, This is fourth-generation warfare. I mean, who do you shoot at? Who do you aim your huge weaponry at? How do you tell a civilian from a civilian that is a rebel?
1: This podcast is brought to you by Reverse Speech Radio, a podcast committed to telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Using the exact same technology as the CIA, they know because they trained them. Join hosts Christian Dicadur and David John Oates every week and hear never-before-heard reversals revealing the hidden truth. Catch politicians lying. Climb inside the head of serial killers. Even hear EVPs played in reverse. Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? All will be revealed on Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday. Find out more at reversespeech.ca. Listen and subscribe at ReverseSpeechRadio.Libson.com
0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett Pursuing the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
1: Welcome to your Wednesday. I am counting down the days until I depart for Greece. Just one more podcast after this one. That would be Friday's episode. And then off we go. And I'll start cranking out episodes of Conspiracy Unlimited from my studio overlooking the Mycenaean Bay. Uh, This episode promises to be among the most controversial topics I've ever handled. In all honesty, uh, my guest says what a lot of us are quietly thinking. The divide between right and left in America has never been greater since the Civil War. The differences seem irreconcilable, and because of demographic shifts due to immigration, it seems the right could, in the not-too-distant future, lose the White House, the Senate, and the House forever. That prospect of being ruled by a leftist government does not sit well with tens of millions of Americans, and my guest says, it's not about race, it's about numbers and demographics. And he's quick to point out, he's advocating for a peaceful separation of right and left in America. He doesn't want to see another civil war. He has, however, come across some chilling predictions about what such a civil war, if fought, would look like, and who would win. John Mark describes himself as doing three things. First, he tries to help people understand the political situation in the West using insights from science, data, and observation. So he says that conservatives can abandon failed strategies. Second, he's an advocate for peaceful separation of right and left in America. This is, however, he says, unlikely to occur due to the psychology and incentives the various groups in play are operating in. So he also helps people understand that civil war is likely coming to America and how to prepare. And third, he wants to popularize and explain proprietarianism, which he explains is a relatively new school of thought and essentially amounts to parasite-proof government. John Mark, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: Very good, sir. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure
1: contemplating a second U.S. Civil War is just chilling. When we think of the casualties in the first Civil War, something like 2% of the entire U.S. population, 620,000 or even maybe as high as 850,000 by some estimates. Those are just the soldiers. That's as many as have died in all U.S. wars up till now. So a second Civil War, what got you started thinking about this?
2: Well, what really started hitting me between the eyes a couple of years ago was I started to realize how the demographics are shifting in America is drastically affecting the electoral politics. So the simple fact of the matter is that 70 percent of non-whites vote left wing, vote Democrat. This is just something that has been happening for decades. And the simple fact of the matter is there's just more and more of them coming. And so the same thing that happened to California is now starting to happen to Texas. Uh, if you look at Texas, just Texas, for example, every year it gets bluer and bluer. It's starting to get to where it's almost a purple state and it's, and it's all just demographics. And so I realized that no one is going to stop the legal immigration in our current political system because too many people just make too much money off of it at the, at the top of the pyramid. And so even Trump is saying, you know, I want more legal immigrants, so nobody's going to stop it. So eventually the right wing, the Republicans, are not going to be able to win any more national level elections. And at that point, the grassroots right wing is going to look down in their hands and they're going to see a ballot in one hand. And they're going to say this ballot is useless now. And then the other hand, they're going to realize, hey, wait a minute, we have all the guns. Why should we be ruled by a coalition of basically communists and parasitic elites? So that's really what hit me between the eyes, was just the way the demographics affect the voting patterns.
1: What about, President Trump has made significant inroads in the Hispanic and African-American vote. Traditionally, Republicans have polled in the single digits in the the African-American vote, and Hispanic vote, well, some have done better than others, but according to some polls... President Trump is as high as 36% with Latinos and uh, certainly well, well into double digits with the African-American vote. And that's all really, up until now, a president has had to do in order to ensure election because that, if you take uh, that vote away from the Democrats, they're pretty well sunk. And then I look at the electoral map from the last, uh, the 2016 election, it's just a sea of red when you look at county by county except for along the the Northeast and the uh, and the West Coast. What are your thoughts on that? You don't think that that tide could turn?
2: Yes, from what I can tell, and I have a video where I explain this, uh, and, and I, I call it Why the Left Never Learns Part One. And most of these non-white people, and let me make it very clear, it's not all of them. I, I'm not talking about all of them, but most of them are operating in a very powerful psychology. I've spent a lot of time in the third world. And these folks are much, much more racially aware than most what we would call just white people of Western European descent. Um, and so there's fascinating reasons for that. I explained more about it in the video. And you have the math exactly right. I mean, right now, where we are in America, it's a toss-up, basically. It's like if Trump, if Trump can get a little bit of the, more of the Hispanic vote right, a little bit more of the black vote, and, and get some of these states that were close, he could pull it off and uh, but because of the constant influx of the non-whites, even the percentages you quoted, even if Trump can get, say, forty uh, percent of the Hispanic vote or twenty-five percent of the black vote, it's just not enough anymore because of the sheer number of of non-whites. After a while, so we would have to do some major. Uh, mass convincing <laughs> of these population groups to be able to turn the tide. And I just don't see it happening because of the psychology they're operating in and because of the sheer numbers.
1: Right. To say nothing of the the um, manipulation by Google, there was a gentleman testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee being questioned by Ted Cruz, who who researched this. And he said that based on 15 years, or maybe it wasn't quite 15 years, but many years of research, the algorithms and and search engine manipulation that Google uses, they swung the lowest possible estimate is about 2.5 million votes, but possibly as high as 10.5 million votes over to Hillary Clinton. So, Mm. (laughs) never mind Russian collusion, it's Google collusion.
2: (laughs) absolutely. And that's the other thing we're up against, is we grassroots right-wingers, to use a broad term, we are very much aware now that all of the powerful institutions are against us. Uh, except for maybe like a Trump, right, And, and a few Congress people that we kind of feel like are on our side and aren't just serving the big corporations. Even while we still have a hope of winning some elections, we're feeling these things slipping through our grasp. And in my videos, I explain why the left is better at getting institutional power slowly, than the grassroots right wing wing is, and so they have all the all of the big institutions now. Uh, the deep state is doing what they do, and we're we're feeling the squeeze. And so then, when the grassroots right figures out, man, we're not going to be able to win any more elections eventually, uh, that's going to be a very volatile situation.
1: Okay, we should be clear that you're obviously you're not advocating for civil war. You're just seeing these Correct. two forces coming together. And uh, it's going to break out at some point. And also, I just I want to address people who might be listening to this and saying, wow, this guy sounds like an avowed racist. He's saying all of the the non-whites are coming in and they're taking over and and, uh, we're getting fed up and so forth. Do you want to address that as well?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, I'm just quoting the statistics. So the statistics are what they are. And so I try to be very clear, and I thank you for, you know, giving me the opportunity to clarify. This is not about saying all non-white people are bad or anything like that, because obviously they're not. Probably every single one of us knows great right-wing non-white people. So this is not about, uh, you know, slamming somebody's race or slamming a whole race or anything like that. This is just about being honest about the dynamics that are happening, being honest about the psychology that is happening. Uh, and for, for white people of Western European descent, it's, we have a very unique history and we don't like to think of it as unique because it, we feel like, oh, we're gonna get called white supremacists or something, but that's not what it is. We have a very unique history that makes us far less ethnocentric than basically any other people group on earth. We learned this secret, which is if we extend trust to people, we can get rich. Because we can all cooperate and we can get scale. And, and so that's kind of what we're trying to do. And we're learning the limits of it. And the limits of it is some of these other people groups, not all of them, but most of the people in some of these people groups uh, are just not ready to deal with us uh, in a reciprocal way. And uh, they come in and then they have antagonism towards whites because they're kind of picking backing off of the uh, the racial tensions from the past and the facts that fact that whites did have slaves and the fact that whites did do colonialism. And so that is feeding into it as well. So I'm just about being honest about the dynamics. This is not about hate towards anyone.
1: The Civil War, you know, depending on which historical perspective you take, but the mainstream perspective is that sort of Fort Sumter was the beginning. That was the, you know, that's what lit the fuse for this four-year horrible bloodletting. What Mm. do you think, I mean, do you have an idea what might be what might light the fuse? I mean, because I've sort of looked at what's going on in the U.S. right now, and I have say you've been engaged in a non-shooting civil war, or call it a culture war for, you know, a couple of decades maybe, but it's really so, starting to ramp up now, as anyone can see. I mean, uh, yes. you know, uh, the, the, the violence from Antifa and the liberals and the liberal media cheering it on and disav- not refusing, refusing to disavow and so forth. But what do you think yes. will be the, the Fort Sumter in this scenario?
2: Well, obviously, I don't know for sure, but I think there are some candidates. One would be, obviously, if they went after Trump in some way where they tried to actually impeach him or assassinate him or something like that. That could definitely be a a trigger point for the right wing where the grassroots right says, "Okay, enough, we're going to take care of business. Um, I think the other thing that's happening that really feeds into this is um, they're, they're really going after the family and after the kids now, if you look at the LGBT folks. Uh, And again, I mean, I don't care if somebody does what they do in their bedroom, but what they're doing is a completely different thing now where they're trying to propagandize the children. And the reason they're doing that is because uh, these LGBT folks have been historically low status. And so they want to teach the kids to think that they're normal. But then it gets into sexualizing kids. And, and maybe I'm just projecting on other grassroots right-wingers my instinctive reaction to that. But I'm just like, oh, no, you're, you're not doing that. Uh, so that's another potential for a flashpoint. And then just in general, as you're talking about, these people are acting on pure instinct. If they were smart, they would take their foot off the gas pedal on this crazy culture stuff that they're doing. And they would just say, all we have to do is wait just wait for all the non-white people to keep flooding in and voting 70% left. And again, it's not hate towards them, it's just this is what's happening. And uh, all we have to do is just wait for that, and we're going to have total power. But they're they're acting on instinct. They can't wait. They, they're just – they instinctively lash out, and they overplay their hand. And Trump is a master at goading them into doing this as well, as we've seen lately with the four congresswomen of the acop- ap- apocalypse or whatever he calls them. So because they are acting on pure instinct, they could do something almost at any time that would create a trigger.
1: So – this isn't just sort of you know a fantasy uh, scenario, and and again I want to repeat this is not something you know you're looking for to happen, that you want yeah. to happen. I mean you're Correct. you're kind of saying, listen, this is where we're headed. Let's let's just slow down here before this gets out of hand. But you're saying that this has actually been analyzed. You have sources, highly placed sources, uh, that say that there has been they've been red teaming this. You need to explain what that means because I. That term to me, I think of cybersecurity threats, companies Mm -hmm. do red team scenarios, Uh, but explain what you mean by red teaming.
2: Sure. And first to be perfectly clear, I actually don't have any sources that I know personally. Uh, The the video that I did that now has over a million views, um, and and this will tell you something, Richard, as well, Uh, the the term civil war gets over a million searches per month on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So, And they're not searching for information about the first civil war. <laughs> right, so when yeah. I made that video, I knew it was going to be – it had a good chance of being popular. So that's just an aside. But, um, And I'm sorry. Now I blanked on your question and I had a, a well, good answer red, for it. Red teaming. It. Oh, yes, red teaming. So I don't have a, a, a source that I know personally or anything like that. This is something I found on the internet where a person who claims to be a former red team planner for the government – Uh, And I don't know, I don't have any way of verifying that claim, but he has an analysis. And when I look at the analysis, I have trouble finding fault with it. So red team planning is, it it could be in cybersecurity, like you're talking about. It could be a corporation or a company that has red team planners. And basically what they do is the red team plays the role of the, the opposition. So the red team hackers could say, we're gonna try to hack into this company's security. And then the blue team is the defense and they see, okay, can we actually hold off the red team? So it's a way of stress testing your organization. And so red team planners in the government Uh, would be people who are analyzing a situation. What if there was a second Revolutionary War? What if there was a second Civil War? What if there is an uprising against the government? How would it go down? So that's what red team planning is. And this particular person who claims to be a former red team planner, his conclusion was that the establishment slash left doesn't really have much of a chance in that type of a scenario if the grassroots right wing decides to rise up.
1: Okay, so then walk us through... Uh, this red teaming scenario what were the uh what sort of things were considered or put on the table in terms of assets that the the left has versus the right and and when we're talking about the left i mean we really mean the 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 establishment and those never mind mm. trump trump is a you know he's a he's an outsider he's surrounded by yes. if you want to call it deep state operatives and so forth but the, the left is basically the government, right?
2: And, yes. And it, those that support them. I just call them. it the left establishment. Exactly right. right. Yes. Okay.
1: So, and then we have uh, those on the right, uh, Trump supporters, uh, conservatives, maybe even, you know, Reagan Democrats. Uh, remember mm-hmm. Democrats, folks? When they were? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, so, so what are the assets? Let's just walk, just walk us through this one sort of step at a time.
2: Sure. So obviously uh, the, the big thing that the left establishment has on their, in their favor is a lot of the institutions. You know, they can use Google, they can use Facebook, they can use the intelligence. Um, I, I, one would assume that a lot of the three-letter agencies are, are loyal to the left establishment, even though I'm sure it's not all of them. So that's really their big asset. Um, and then on the right wing, there's a lot of big assets if they decide to act, right? Which, and again, the reason this is so important is because I'm seeing a situation where the grassroots right wing is going to have no more political power, essentially, at the federal level. So they're going to feel like they have no choice. And so if they get in that position where they have no choice, what are their assets? Well, first of all, uh, who would be the enforcement arm, the, the, the force enforcement arm of the left establishment? Well, it would be the military for the most part. Well, the military voted two thirds for Trump. So that's one thing.
1: right the Plus they're thing scattered is, overseas. They're in a hundred locations correct. across the globe.
2: Yeah, so even if they had a hundred percent obedience, which they um, surely wouldn't, if they were told to go around and you know round up Trump supporters or something, uh, it's difficult for those reasons, exactly.
1: OK. And then you also, uh, if memory serves, you point out uh, that while we're talking about the military, you have ex-military.
2: Yes. Ex, there are, and I didn't know this until I started doing research for this, but there are many more ex-military folks in America than current military. And most of those, again, are more of the grassroots right wing types. And then another big factor that I always try to mention, and it's especially important for anybody that lives in a big city, especially a big uh, blue city, liberal city, uh, is – the infrastructure is very, very vulnerable. Um, The electricity systems, uh, the water systems, these things are not protected because it would be very, very expensive to protect. Um, And so they have some backups, obviously. It's not like they're just completely devoid of backups, but the point being, it would not take much for an even slightly organized group of grassroots right wingers to just start doing a for what they call fourth generation warfare which is you just hit infrastructure and then you hide and it's very hard for even if the military was 100% on board with trying to shut this down it's very hard for them to do it because it's it's citizens doing this and so they then they then just blend into the population it's hard to figure out who they are and so this is what our military has been running into in at places like Af- Afghanistan even and that kind of thing. So that's the other thing is that it's it's pretty easy to really disrupt infrastructure. We saw recently, just la- I think it was last weekend, New York City, one fire, one problem, knocked out 42 blocks. And of course they were able to fix it pretty quickly, but what if there's a, a sustained campaign of some sort to try to knock out the infrastructure to some of these big cities? Imagine what it's gonna be like after three, five, 10 14 days with no power the food's going to run out that kind of thing so just imagine right. the worst and prepare for it
1: well yeah and and the major urban centers are run by the the uh, the left establishment you know chicago yes. new york san francisco los angeles you name it yes. all the big cities uh, and and most of them are essentially food deserts i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. middle america which is which are the the red states they're, that's the breadbasket. They supply the food. And it's just in time delivery, too. Like 48 hours yes. without food, those, those shelves are
2: bare. Absolutely. It's, because that's the economically efficient way to do it. So that, that's exactly what you, uh, what people need to be aware of is you're not going to be able to just, you know, three days after the le- electricity is out, you're not going to be able to just waltz into Walmart and buy groceries without some, the chaos is going to start to hit pretty quick. And you're right. There's no, there's no stores of anything.
1: So now the left is, is faced with an interesting situation. So uh, let's say, well, have you, have they, have the the, the gentleman that did this red teaming or you yourself, have you sort of calculated the percentage necessary uh, to sort of rebuild to, to rebel, to mutiny in the, in the military mm. and, let's say, the police in order to render the, the left um, – well, to neuter them, essentially.
2: Mm. Yes. Well, I've never been in the military, so I'm reliant on people who have been in the military. So after I put the video out, I have gotten some emails from current and former military folks. And what they tell me is that it really doesn't take much – I'm just going to call it disobedience, defection or defection in place – in the military or the police, especially the military, for things to break down. Because, for example, one military guy was telling me, you know, I worked on a particular type of equipment, some kind of a tank or something. I forget what it was. I'm not an expert. But he said, we needed like six or seven people for every one person that was actually on the front lines. We needed six or seven people to be logistically in the right place, doing the right thing. If one of those people decides not to do their job, you're screwed. You can't do anything. So uh, it doesn't take much defection. And again, let's just remind everybody, two-thirds of the military voted for Trump. So the left – and this is my point that I make a lot – the left establishment has no enforcement arm if the grassroots right decides to take things into their own hands.
1: Right. And then let's assume just for the sake of the argument they have 100 percent obedience uh, and then we get back to civil unrest in the major urban centers – uh, mm-hmm. And that th- that unrest is going to come from people. It doesn't matter left or right. They just want food. They want it now. Yes. Uh, so now, yes. as you point out in your in your excellent video, the establishment is fighting a war on two fronts. Not only are they fighting the, if you want to call them patriots or militias, um, um, and so forth, but they're now fighting civilians who are mad with hunger. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. It's very hard for the government to look good in a situation like that because uh, people tend to blame the government, right? Why aren't you taking care of this? Why aren't, it's, almost, it's almost like any kind of a chaos situation, it's very difficult for the government to do what is considered a good job. So uh, you're exactly right. They would be fighting a two-front battle. Even if they had full obedience, if you look at the numbers – and as you said many of the military people are overseas the police forces of these major cities are with the exception of washington dc which is kind of a militarized zone because it has to be but most of these major cities they're just staffed for basically bare bones everyday policing they're not staffed for this like even when the lights went out in new york city for five hours for 42 blocks the emergency services is instantly overwhelmed because it's the same thing as the food they're not staffed for emergency because that would be incredibly inefficient. They are staffed for everyday situations. And so they instantly get overwhelmed when there's something like this. And so you're exactly right. The government would be fighting a two front battle. And then the other battle they'd be fighting, I'll throw this in as well, is the the moral authority battle. It's very hard for governments to look good when their own citizens are rebelling against them, because it's like, well, you're doing such a bad job that your citizens are rebelling against you now. So uh, they're fighting a PR war at the same time, which is also difficult.
1: Back to more of my conversation with political analyst John Mark when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Timothy in Tennessee writes, this is one of the greatest things I've ever put in my body. I couldn't agree more. Lana Paley in California writes, thank you, this is a miracle tea. With every glass, I feel better and better. Now, over the last couple of months, I've been extolling the virtues of life change tea this remarkable, all-organic, caffeine-free herbal tea. I begin every day with an eight-ounce glass of cold, refreshing tea. It's gently cleansing my body. No more bloating, no more constipation. I feel energized, and let me tell you, that's crucial for a late-night radio guy. Why not find out for yourself how Life Change Tea and Formula 13 Herbal Power Tea can change your life? Go to getthetea.com, getthetea.com, and use the code word UNLIMITED when making your first purchase. That order ships for free. Life Change Tea and Formula 13 Herbal Power Tea from getthetea.com.
0: The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: John Mark is here, and we're discussing something rather ominous, the next civil war in America. Now, some might say, okay, so the um, the right wing, uh, well, let's just call them the Reds, they have... Um, it's funny, you know, up here in Canada, we we think of the Reds as uh, the Liberals and the Commies. Yeah. I guess that was a that was kind of a democratic plot, wasn't it? Back in 1980, they switched the colors mm. during the Reagan era yeah. because the conservatives conservatives should be blue anyway. Yes, uh, I'm off on a on a tangent there, but uh, uh, let's just talk about numbers in terms of guns um, and. And let's assume that, again, 100% compliance with the police and the military, even though they overwhelmingly vote, you know, conservative or Trump. Let's talk about guns. Who's going to have the guns?
2: Well, the numbers that I have seen, and I don't know exactly how how accurate this is, but it's, it's probably not too far off, is uh, um, there are 400 million guns roughly in the hands of the grassroots right wing. And then if you look at just the sheer numbers of people, you have 60, 65 million folks voted for Trump, roughly equal number voted on the left. But those guys, uh, a huge portion of them don't believe in guns. The left doesn't believe in guns. And so they don't have guns. Now you've got some inner city uh, people like gangs and stuff like that. They're going to have gun- guns. And then you have a few people here and there. But these inner city guys are going to be going around looting. You know, if this kind of a scenario happens, they're yeah, not going to be like in an organized it's fashion. A, exactly. Yeah. It's just they're, they're going to be in survival mode. And so this is this is another reason why I think I put the the quote at the beginning of my videos. Everything that happens in America happens with the permission of the grassroots right wing because it is literally the largest army in the world. Um, And the other side just can't compete. They don't have the military. They could count on some of the police maybe who are going to be overwhelmed. Who's their enforcement arm? Nobody. So that's that's one of the main points I drive home in the video is just the raw numbers as you're talking about, and the raw numbers of armed people because unarmed people don't count; they're just sitting ducks. How many in a armed, situation like that?
1: How many armed people uh, does would it take uh, to to, uh, to claim victory in a, in a in a in a in a civil war like this? Do we know?
2: I don't know, obviously, the exact number, but uh, because of the ins- because of the infrastructure uh, vulnerability it actually would not take that many people. And I'll tell you what I think would be the ideal scenario. Obviously none of this scenario is ideal, right? So don't get me wrong, but if there was gonna be some kind of a conflict, the ideal scenario with the least bloodshed would be something to the effect of some grassroots right-wingers lay siege, basically through infrastructure hits on a couple of uh, larger blue cities, right? Larger leftist cities. And it just gets to the point where the chaos is bad enough that um, the military either takes over or there's some kind of an agreement. It's like, okay, if you let us separate from you, where the grassroots right says, if you let us separate from you, we will stop the pain. And then, you know, we can have some kind of a separation. There's different options after that. But uh, you could lay siege to one or more of these leftist cities with Boy, I, don't, I don't know the exact number, but it just doesn't take that many people uh, to cause havoc because of the infrastructure. So several thousand could possibly even pull it off. And if, like I said, if, if it gets to the point where the whole grassroots right realizes they're politically disempowered in the current system, it's going to be a lot more people than that ready to act uh, because they're going to feel they have no other choice. So I don't know the exact number, but it's a lot less than most people think. Most people tend to think, well, you would need like, you know, 20 million people to act, well, that's not true at all because of the infrastructure vulnerability, as far as I can tell.
1: Yeah. I mean, how many yellow vests have brought Paris to a standstill like for an, an entire year?
2: Yes. And they don't even have guns. They're not even using guns. They're just doing you know, protest uh, stuff that, that doesn't require guns. And they're not really hitting infrastructure. If they really wanted to hit infrastructure, I mean, they're hitting some of it. But we, that's a good example. It doesn't take that much to cause chaos because our society is so technological, it's so reliant on just-in-time delivery of everything, it's extremely fragile.
1: Uh, okay, so you might say the militias and the militias and their supporters—they've got AR-15s and so forth—but the uh, the government, the military—they've got heavy-duty hardware. They've got these active denial um, sound cannons and and different things to control. Mm-hmm populations they've got howitzers they've got flamethrowers they've got the heavy-duty
0: equipment
2: Yes, so that's definitely a plus uh, or, or, or an asset on the, the blue team's side, we'll put it that way, and I point that out in my video. But the problem is in the type of warfare that this would be, this is not two armies just lining up against each other and seeing who has bigger firepower. Uh, this is fourth generation warfare. And so if the grassroots right wing takes a tactic of, we're just gonna hit and hide, we're gonna hit infrastructure and hide, and just keep doing that and creating chaos and letting the chaos do all the work, of putting pressure and creating demand for restoration of order, because you got to remember the other thing that's going to happen is the the U.S. economy, that stock market's going to tumble, and that means the rest of the world is going to start suffering economically, and and everybody's just going to want it to be over. Like, let's just get this over so we can so we can go back to making money, business as usual, right? So that's going to be a huge pressure point, and so uh, if the grassroots right wing takes this type of a tactic, which would be their most likely tactic to take, I think. Uh, It's very hard for, I mean, who do you shoot at? Who do you aim your huge weaponry at? How do you tell a civilian from a civilian that is a rebel? It's very difficult, and we're running into this in the Middle East and some of our conflicts as well. And so the heavy weaponry is not nearly the level of advantage as some people would think. And then, of course, we go back to all of that heavy machinery, fancy machinery has a huge chain of people that all have to be doing their jobs 100% in order for it to work. And there's a good chance in a situation like this, that would not be happening.
1: Right. Even if you had 1% that were sabotaging equipment and so forth, it could bring it to a a standstill. Uh, Sure. Now, you mentioned... The, the dependence of the, the world on the U.S. economy thriving. Certainly China is a perfect example. But if yes. the United States was embroiled in a civil war, some might argue, might argue that it's very vulnerable and just uh, ripe for an invasion from one of our adversaries, the uh, Russia or China. How, do you, uh, how does the, the red team scenario look at that?
2: Yeah, that's a very good point. It's a very frequent thing that people bring up. Now, I think if it happened relatively fast, you wouldn't really have much trouble with that. If it got to be a long, drawn-out thing that lasted for months uh, or more, then I'm hesitant to say that we would see boots on the ground from any foreign army. And a big reason for that is we have nukes. So the military stance, I'm guessing, would be – I think this is a pretty educated guess – would be something along the lines of this is our internal issue – If you put boots on the ground, you're declaring war basically against us and we have nukes. So this is the whole reason everybody has nukes is so we don't do this to each other and put boots on the ground and invade each other. So but I think you would probably see um, if it was a drawn out scenario, you'd probably see some economic or arms aid. Uh, either directly or indirectly from some of these foreign nations. So Russia might support the grassroots right wing. In that fashion, China might support the left. There could be other actors. But I think it's less likely that you would see boots on the ground, maybe some UN troops, but they don't have, you know, peacekeeping troops, but that's not very large numbers. So I tend to think that's a little bit less of a factor than uh, some other people do.
1: Also, you you make an excellent point, or the gentleman that put this red team scenario together did, and that is just the the sheer, the vastness uh, of the United Mm. States, mountain ranges and rivers and so forth, would negate uh, any sort of effective land invasion.
2: Yes, it's very. Yeah, we're huge. We forget how huge we are (laughs) until you start overlaying maps of like Europe on top of the United States of America, and so yes, we're we're huge. And as you said, the middle of America is much more self efficient, self sufficient. There's a great guy uh, by the name of Peter Zihan Z E I H A N, who is a geopolitical strategist, and he talks about how the middle of America is extremely self-sufficient and so really these coastal cities would uh are are more vulnerable because they're reliant on shipments from there and it's also a problem as you say if anybody's trying to invade i mean what where are they going to invade uh it's just such a big territory how are they going to actually take over such a huge territory it if you start to try to play it out logistically it's very very difficult somewhere between difficult and impossible
1: i think you also point this out in your video and that the japanese uh, the Imperial uh, Army, they they had considered a land invasion of the United States, but then because of all of the points that you just made, they ruled it out.
2: Yes. Yeah, they they know, they, uh, I think the phrase was, and I forget if this is a, an accurate quote or not, or if this is just something somebody made up, but there's a, a gun behind every blade of grass, right? And if there was a foreign invasion, all of a sudden, any grassroots right-winger that's not involved is going to be much more uh, motivated, even even more motivated to get involved and say, no, we're not going to be taken over by foreigners by any stretch.
1: Right. That's why, <laughs> that's, you know, the well-armed militia, the Second Amendment. That's what that was all about.
2: Absolutely. That's our saving grace. Yep.
1: And, and why perhaps, well, not perhaps, <laughs> it's quite transparent, why the left seems so determined to disarm America.
2: Oh, absolutely, and that's that's really our. I have people from Europe writing me, emailing me, uh, IMing me on Facebook, saying, "You know, I want to come to America and help you guys because we're we're disarmed over here. What do we do? You know, they took away our guns, and of course, there are some guns in Europe. I don't want to be inaccurate, but uh, that's really the um, the big thing that we have that makes us invincible. And so, uh, that's the other thing I try to get across to the grassroots right wing as well is. Excuse me. Sometimes we feel uh, we feel like we don't have as much power because we're sensing that the left is taking over all the institutions, which they are, because they're very very good at that. They have a natural advantage in that over the grassroots right wing. But what I say is, you got to remember that all of their power eventually flows out of the end of the gun and the out of the end of a gun. And most of those guns are actually in grassroots right wingers' hands, whether it's the military, whether it's the, the civilians. Law enforcement, uh, it's, a, it's a, a form of fake power that the left has at this point, so don't forget that.
1: So the, the, uh, the verdict here, obviously, it's, is, is way more check marks in the win column for the blues or the, the right uh, versus the left. I, yes. One thing we didn't mention is the media. That's certainly obvious. Mm-hmm. That's in the left hand side, but that's, I guess, just easily disrupted because of infrastructure and so forth.
2: Yes. And, it, you know, it could be the type of scenario where this is mainly going down in one or more big leftist cities. And everybody else is kind of just watching it on TV. (laughs) So the mainstream media, of course, is going to be on the side of the left establishment with the possible exception of, you know, a Fox News or something like that. But uh, and the alternative media is going to be doing what they do, which is giving another perspective, which is obviously very valuable. Um, But uh, again, they're going to be the leftist media is doing a huge favor to us right now because they are so shrill and hyped up about every single thing that the grassroots right does, every single thing that Trump says. So it wears thin after a while. And so everybody understands they're just following a narrative. They always stick to their narrative, any grassroots right winger, no matter how mild is a Nazi. And it's just like, you know, you've said that you've cried wolf so many times, we don't take it seriously anymore. And so they're gonna be doing the same thing in a situation like this, but uh, all of the people that matter are gonna have tuned it out already anyway.
1: So how does this end? I mean, let's hope it never happens, but how would it end? Uh, How quickly and then what would be, how would it be resolved?
2: Well, I think the the way it would eventually be resolved is the establishment, which, as I'm sure you know, is not going to be keen about giving up power. But basically what the grassroots right wing is going to try to do most likely is just put so much pressure, uh, so much pressure on the economy, so much pressure on these cities where they basically cry uncle and say, "Okay, enough. You guys can have your own states or you can secede or, you know, you can run uh, most of America and just have these blue cities be their own areas because if you look at a map uh, of of population and population density half the half of America lives in in these dense areas and that's where all the blue people are and so it's really just a few dense densely populated areas that have all of these folks and the rest of the country is like a sea of red as you say (laughs) so uh, so I my goal would be to for the grassroots right wing or my, my hope would be, if something like this happens, would be the grassroots right wing ends up with uh, most of the territory of the United States because that's where we live. And, you know, if these blue people have their, their little, you know, cities that they want to take down the drain, they can go ahead and do that if they want to. Um, so I don't, it's too hard to say exactly how long it would last, exactly what would happen. But I think eventually what would happen is basically the grassroots right wing presents demands and says, listen, we will stop this if you let us separate from you. Um, and if the pain is bad enough, they would consider that as opposed to continuing to fight a battle that they're losing.
1: And again, uh, let's be clear, you're you're not advocating for this. You're saying this is what staring us in the face. How do we avoid yes. it? How do we prepare? Uh, can we prepare for a, a peaceful uh, uh, secession?
2: I mean, I, that's what I advocate for is peaceful secession. I do two things at once. One is what I'm doing here with you is, which is telling people, I think this is pretty much inevitable. And the other is advocating for peaceful secession at the same time, because I think both of those things actually increase the chance that this could be over faster rather than, uh, being a really drawn out thing. So, uh, telling people that civil war is coming increases demand for peaceful separation. Now, let's be honest, is the left establishment going to just let us go our our own way? uh, Or are they just going to be thrilled when the Democrats start winning every election and, you know, they're not going to just let us go without a fight would be my prediction. And so uh, when i say my goal is to have it come out a certain way i think that we need to actively try to steer this the best we can even if we can't avoid it totally we need to actively steer it and one of the ways i'm trying to do that before beforehand is to let people know listen this could happen it could be really bad a lot of people could get really hurt let's you know let's be aware of this <laughs> and if we can meme it into the consciousness of people and this is happening um, people are searching, as I said, civil war a million times a month on YouTube, um, 33%, this is from a couple years ago, I think 33% of Americans think civil war could happen in their lifetime. So people are very, very aware that the two sides cannot live together. And so I think the more we just talk about it, the greater, the chance to have it end more quickly rather than being really drawn out.
1: All right. And again, just, uh, uh assuage, uh, my listeners that this is not coming from a, a point of view of, of, of hate and and racism.
2: Correct. Correct. That is, that's not what it's about. Uh, this is about just being realistic. And um, it, it's kind of, I, it almost makes me sad that um, this is what it comes down to that basically, I mean, it, it'd be great to just be able to say, sure, we can take, you know, tons of immigrants from everywhere and just come and have a better life. And But the problem is the Democrats are going to start winning all the elections. So that's just the reality. And it's not hate at all. I mean, I know uh, non-white folks that are right-wing politically. We all know that they're out there. There's talking heads that are that are blacks, that are right-wings, that are Hispanics, that are right-wing. So this is not about lumping anybody in one big category, but we do have to be realistic about the statistical patterns. And that's really what's driving this. So uh, uh, to the point where it's not, where we're not going to be able to avoid it probably. So Again, it's not about hate. It's just about being real, realistic about the situation.
1: If people want to see this uh, this video uh, in which you go into far greater detail about this red teaming uh, scenario of, of uh, the next civil war, God forfend, how, how do we see it?
2: Uh, it's on YouTube. If you just search John Mark, J-O-H-N-M-A-R-K, Mark My Words, and uh, you could also search civil war along with that, and I'm sure it will come up.
1: And you, do you have a YouTube channel where you, you post videos on other subjects as well?
2: Yes, my YouTube channel is just John Mark. So again, if you search John Mark, Mark My Words, or John Mark Civil War, I'm sure you'll, that video will come up and you'll be able to find my YouTube channel. And my website is John Mark Says as well, John Mark, John Mark com.
1: Well, it's a chilling uh, scenario. Let's hope uh, and pray to God that you're wrong.
2: Yes. uh, I would love to be wrong. (laughs) That would make me very happy. Um, But I think it's worthwhile. And I thank you for having me on, Richard, for, uh, you know, just spreading the word that this is something that uh, could very likely happen and for people to just be prepared.
1: All right, John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Richard. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back to fill you in on what's coming up next on the next edition of Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier. And a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash patreon.com forward slash Be sure to be listening Friday for Part 4 of A Beginner's Guide to False Flags. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
0: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now.